This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, your source for the best audiobooks, including unabridged readings of the latest novels from the incredible family of Star Trek authors. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help this show and the network at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Welcome back, listeners, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's podcast dedicated to all things from the original series. I am your host, Haley Stoddart, and joining me aboard the bridge for today's discussion is Mike Richards. We are going to be discussing leadership style of Captain Kirk, consequences, whether positive or negative, of his decisions, and the social ramifications of those decisions. So welcome aboard, Mike, to the ship. Great to be here, Haley. Been a big fan of Standard Orbit for the last several years. Really, really enjoyed uh, the shows once you joined Zach and Ken. Sorry to see them go. Felt like they left the show just on on a perfect note. Um, but uh, having the opportunity to come here and be a guest has been uh, something I've looked forward to for a long time. So thank you sincerely for having me on. Well, thank you for coming and uh, thank you for this topic. You kind of mentioned this to me and I thought this would be a really fun discussion to have, especially given everything that's currently going on in our own world. Star Trek has always been a reflection of ourselves to us. And so I think this is a perfect topic for today's discussion. Do you want to kind of talk about why you want to discuss this? Absolutely. So one of the things I learned about you from listening to Standard Orbit was your profession as a social worker. And I'm interested in discussions that have happened on the show about the social ramifications of different uh that happened on different episodes and how things wrapped up at the end of the uh, 50 minutes that we got to see the crew of the Enterprise. My interest, uh, due to my chosen field, is with decision-making, leadership, risk management, and those kind of things. And I thought the two of us could put that together and have an interesting conversation, not only on leadership style, risk management, but also sort of the consequences of, of those decisions, uh, not only short-term, but long-term as well. Sure. And this is something that's really interesting to me. And so when you when you talked about this, I thought that would be a really fun discussion to have given both of our professions. And I've always tried to bring something like this to every discussion that I've had regarding Star Trek. I can't help it. It just comes out. I'm looking forward to this, see where this goes. So you kind of brought up some episodes from season one. We've picked a few of them, and I'm kind of excited. Which one would you like to discuss first? Do you want to start at the top with Charlie X? Well, yes, I just kind of started at the beginning, and I picked out some episodes that had some interesting um, you know, leadership style topics that we could discuss as well as uh, some some social impact as well. So yeah, Charlie X was the first one that I that I picked out. Not the first. Uh, I think it was the second in uh, broadcast order, which uh, I think here on Standard Orbit we're fans of of production order. But uh, started pretty early on in the next Netflix queue. So uh, I'd like to yeah start with Charlie X. Sure. So. This episode is really interesting for my perspective because you have this teenager who clearly is really struggling with himself. He's He's got all these powers that he probably shouldn't have, but he does. And how he handles that. I mean, being a teenager is rough. We've all been there. I have a teenager 
at home now who is angry with me today. And I'm sure if she had Charlie X's powers, would probably use them against me. It is interesting to see the crew try to interact with this kid and help this kid, but they don't do it very well. Right. He starts off right away. He's uh, part of a shipwreck when he was three years old, lived 14 years by himself. Uh, no human contact, um, has incredibly high acceptance needs. He shows up, he just wants to be liked, and he just wants to fit in, and he just doesn't know how. Tries to ask questions, tries to learn, kind of instantly gets scolded by Captain Kirk, being, being told that it's interrupting is rude, which is correct. I think that is you know, the, the, the right way to handle a, a child who's interrupting. Does not uh, immediately put a good plan into action to educate Charlie. He and McCoy discuss it. In fact, Kirk says, Dr. McCoy, I'd like to put a plan in place to uh, educate Charlie, see to his social needs and his his reintegration into humanity. And McCoy says, boy, that'd be great for you to do, Jim. You're a strong male role model, a father figure. Clearly, he likes you. And uh, Kirk says, yeah, I'm going to leave that up to you, Bones. Charlie just kind of wanders around the ship, learning what he could learn, uh, making mistakes, thinking he learned something, and then he's wrong. For instance, he sees a couple of crew members who are good friends. Uh, one of them gives the other one a, a slap. He tries the same thing on, on Yeoman Rand, who he's clearly smitten with. I don't think he has a, any ill intention. Um, although, as we know, it's, it's, it's not okay, never was okay, even in the 60s. And just makes those kind of awkward social mistakes and just doesn't know where he fits in. He's very much uh, has an attachment disorder because he has not been raised around other humans, even if it was just other types of humanoids. And so those growing up years are very foundational for kids. You know, they learn from their parents what's right, what's wrong. They learn from their peers what's right, what's wrong, what interactions are okay, what's not okay. For Kirk to be very dismissive, I mean, it seems very in character for this early on to just kind of throw a teenager off. Like, I've got this kid, very much like uh, Picard. I have a kid on my bridge. Like, what is he doing on my ship? He shouldn't be on my ship kind of attitude, right? I thought the same thing. He he mirrored very much his attitude towards children that Picard had in, in early Next Gen. At the same time, you, you have to look at it like this kid has been by himself. And clearly, this is somewhere where if there had been a ship's counselor aboard the original series, which I would hope there would have been, you know, yes, in TNG, we, we see Troy all the time. TOS, we never see like a ship's counselor. It's almost always left up to Bones, who's a doctor, which is understandable, but he's more of a medical field, not a social studies kind of field. And so it, it's really sad that this kid essentially comes aboard and he's just disregarded. You know, he's been by himself for so long, essentially, so to speak. He continues to be by himself. And you can kind of feel for him at first, at least looking back and talking about it now that this kid really just was not given the opportunities that he should have been and those choices. And you wish you could hit a reset button on his life. But then he kind of takes it and kind of is not so great. He does. So so Kirk is a young captain at this point. He's in his early 30s, probably has his concentration on the ship and day-to-day -day daily operations and those kind of things. Uh, the people thing, that's that's somebody else. That's his, uh, that's his doctors to take care of or the life sciences division. Dr. Helen Noel is somewhere on board, I think. She's a psychiatrist um, who comes into play with Dagger of the Mind a couple of episodes down the road. 
that situation, it really would have been great for the writers to have thrown that in. Absolutely, it would have been. And the first real sign of trouble we see is when the crush on Yeoman Rand turns into a situation where she feels threatened. And she goes to the captain and says, I've seen this before. He He's starting to show some obsessive behavior towards me. And if it doesn't stop now, I'll have to hurt him, she says. And I don't know if she means she'll have to hurt him by defending herself if he forces herself on him, or she'll have to hurt him psychologically because she is becoming his first crush. I wasn't sure how literally or figuratively to take that, but she's concerned and she goes to the captain. And at this point, the captain says, okay, I I need to step in. And he he makes the right decision at this point. I need to step in and mentor uh, this young man. And he does. He says, look, if you care about a woman, you have to take it slow. You've got to realize that it's a two-way street and her feelings count as well. You know, be gentle, he says. Respect her feelings. Like, that's really good advice to give to a young man. That that actually is advice that, you know, I wish I had uh, thought of, you know, when I was a teenager with a first crush. Be gentle. Take your time. Respect her feelings. Those are really, really good things. Charlie doesn't like that advice. He says, well, you don't have to wait. You don't have to be gentle. You're a captain. You can have anything you want. And he says, no, Charlie, everybody has to decide what they want and what they can have. And there are a million things in this universe you can have and a million things that you can't. And that's just part of life. And and that conversation, I think, was really, really good. And he really, really needed to hear. But I don't think Charlie wanted to listen. And he just became very sort of depressed and detached after that. And I think that's where Kirk said, okay, it's time for a change of scenery. Let's go practice some good old-fashioned male bonding. Take, I'll take my shirt off and we can roll around in the gym for a while. <laughs> well, my issue with this is Charlie has not grown up in the normal sense that everybody else aboard the Enterprise has. We have, most kids have these days where they're around other people. So he might not fully understand exactly what Kirk is saying when he's saying, you've got to take it slow. She's got to express herself and you have to respect that. He has no idea what these concepts mean because he's never grown up with it. You know, that is a problem where you can sit there and explain explain as much as you want, but that's just really shouting at the wind because this kid isn't really going to grasp what you're saying where he's never had interactions with other people. So he doesn't know how to read social cues and he doesn't understand body language or exactly what everybody means. And sometimes even we don't. One person can say one thing to somebody. They might take it completely different based on how they've been raised and where they've grown up and how their life experiences have impacted them. And you could turn around and say the same thing to somebody else and they'd be like, yeah, I totally get what you're saying. But this person over here would be like, I don't get it at all. What are you talking about? And so that's Charlie right there. He didn't have that that common frame of reference in order to understand uh, the words that Captain Kirk was, was imparting upon him. I think it was great advice for a normal adolescent teen. But you're right. I, I think it was lost because he didn't have that common frame of reference to communicate those thoughts. With this episode, we look at this and this poor kid ends up having to go back with the beings that were essentially taking care of him because they realize he's not ready 
to be with actual other people. And what are the consequences of that? Because if they're corporeal, they can't continue to give him those experiences. He's never going to be a normal human. And he's never really going to be able to be with other people because he's lacking these experiences that he never had growing up. What do you think is going to happen coming from your perspective? Uh, from my perspective, he is taken back by the Thasians who uh, from whom he escaped they took care of him like you said his whole his whole life and they felt like he would be too dangerous uh, among humans that he would not be able to control his powers now kirk does step up and said we can train him he should be among his own kind in time it went with training he could learn to control his powers and the thasians really said no we don't think he can and didn't really give uh, anybody a choice and just took Charlie back with them. It was heart-wrenching to see Charlie say, I don't want to go. They don't feel. I can't touch them. I can't be with them. They don't love. And really, that is really and truly the consequence of this episode, is that he will go back there. The rest of the people, the people on uh, Colony 5 will be safe. People on the Enterprise will be safe. The Thasians were able to make everything as it was on the Enterprise anyway. <laughs> the crew of the Antares is another uh, topic, unfortunately. But uh, Charlie really will bear the brunt of the consequences on his own. And I don't see how he can live uh, and have a fulfilling, psychologically sound life moving forward. It sounds like he was going to return to a, to a life of complete solitude. If anybody wants to know, you know, how this turns out in the long run, there's a great fan film called Star Trek of Gods and Men that reunites Charlie X with uh, Gary Mitchell. And it is an excellent episode, uh, an excellent fan film that is very well done. Uh, but no, Char Charlie's Charlie's hosed. There's no question about that. He's not going to go on to any kind of any kind of normal life after this. I think that's made clear at the end of uh, at the end of the episode. And you can also see just how despondent, how depressed the crew is. Uh, Janice Rand is in tears. Kirk says it's okay, Yeoman. It's over. And then everybody in that frame just sits in silence as the episode very sadly ends. You know, this was not we killed a monster episode. This was We Failed a Child episode. Well, and, you know, I think this is an interesting one because Kirk's dismissive at the beginning with Charlie and just doesn't really care, doesn't want to help this kid reintegrate into society, essentially, after being by himself for such a long period of time. And then he's kind of dismissive at the end of how Charlie affected everybody aboard the ship, potentially even Kirk himself. And especially of Yeoman Rand, like this really was really hard to watch for me as a woman. And, and seeing this and Kirk's like, oh, it's fine. It's over. It's done with. No, it's not. There was more than one of those, though, too. And she came to him with his concerns and she said, come on, he's just a boy. And she said, I've seen this before. And if he doesn't stop, I'm going to have to hurt him. I mean, I took that the first time I watched this as physically. She would have to fight him off and mm -hmm. hurt him. And I liked the fact that she considered herself strong, strong enough and able to hurt him and fight him off. I thought that was a very strong womanly quality to have. Um, but I did not like how dismissive Kirk was about that at that point. I do think at the end that he did do his best 
to be an advocate for Charlie and and take responsibility at that point for his reintegration into society. It, it was just too late at that point. So do you think that if they had been able to keep Charlie aboard, do you think they would have been able to help him? Do you think the Kirk and crew would have really been able to help Charlie become more of a human, essentially, and find those human qualities and aspects of himself and be able to control his powers that he was given? Boy, he sure seemed contrite at the end. And I think that's what convinced the crew to try to give him another chance. Do I think they would have been able to? Boy, I don't know. I think they owed it to themselves. I think the crew owed it to themselves to try. And it's hard to say, you know, like I said, with my work, some kids are really great at being able to move forward and move past and learn from their mistakes. But at a certain age, that becomes more difficult. Being a teenager, I don't know if the crew would have really been able to help him much. They potentially could have if they had found a colony that he could have been on that had the people really set up to help him learn and grow where he could have had other teenagers around because there's no other kids aboard the Enterprise. Well, hey, now we've got another Dagger of the Mind tie-in where they could have sent him down to Dr. Tristan Adams for help. Oh, I don't know about that. (laughs) But, you know, if he'd been around some other kids, I think that would have potentially helped him as well because their interactions with themselves and each other really would have shown him, hey, here's how kids interact with each other, even if it's kids of his own age or younger that he's interacting with. So I don't know necessarily if the crew would have really been able to help him fully become a human again. Very difficult to say. All right. So we're going to discuss an episode and I'm not sure how I feel about it, but I'm going to, I'm going to give it my all and I'm really excited about this. So you also wanted to discuss Mud's women and these ramifications of this episode and the social commentary on this. What is it about Mud's women that you think is relevant? Anything relevant to today? Absolutely. So this has always been sort of one of those fun episodes when Harry Mudd showed up and here and and I Mudd and also episodes that that were much derided and for good reason. But when I watched Mudd's Women and I just kind of scanned once again from from top to bottom in in broadcast order and saw this, the first thing I thought of was human trafficking Mm -hmm. and just clearly what an awful, unacceptable situation that is and and how awful that practice is. Working for an airline, something that I've recently received training in. So it was sort of at the, the forefront of my mind. Leo Walsh, aka Harry Mudd, refers to the women who beam aboard not as his crew, but as his cargo. He uses he uses drugs to control them. He uses promises of a better life as the wives or as the wife of a, of faraway settlers uh, to lure them, you know, onto a ship. Eve McCurran, one of the women, said he's so used to buying and selling people that, and then she gets interrupted. So we don't know what the rest of her sentence was going to be. But he really does practice all of the tactics that we look for if we're trying to identify human trafficking. And it's it's quite serious. And I just sort of wondered with you how you thought, if at all, the crew addressed the situation. Uh, did they handle it right or wrong? And just general thoughts about this. Yeah, so, and and this is, this is a very serious, serious topic, and really actually quite sad that there is still so much of this going on. And surprisingly, if you want to look, it happens here. Women are from the United States are trafficked out. Absolutely. We just saw a case where a woman was uh, was on an airplane, 
and wrote a note to their crew that expressed some concern and sort of set the wheels in motion for what to look for. But uh, I think it, I think it happens now, and I think it probably happens more now than it used to. I think as technology evolves, uses for it evolve too, and it's uh, it's just a, a terrible, terrible situation. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, I've traveled quite a bit in airlines, airports, you see the signs in the women's bathroom with assistance. Like if, if you are being trafficked, if this is the situation you're in, here's what you can do to get help. This episode, I remember watching it and thinking I was cringing. I knew exactly what this was. And Harry Mudd, you know, yes, we, we see him in iMud and we see him in Discovery. And it's funny when he's there, but he really is at the heart of his core pretty awful human being in this episode i don't know if they meant for his character to be this despicable Uh, i know he's a space pirate and you know pirates are going to smuggle what they're going to smuggle to get the money whatever it is but this episode is really just awful and i don't know necessarily if the crew at least at first handled it very well they thought, oh, this little crystalline thing that he's got, this is really cool. Let's try it out. Like, okay, well, we've got drug situation going on in this episode and we've got human trafficking and they go hand in hand. Even today, you know, I get being intrigued by something that makes these women feel great about themselves. And there's a degree of Stockholm syndrome going on where he claims that they willingly came and, oh, we wanted to because he makes us feel better about ourselves. Well, that's narcissism. Someone is going to make you feel better about yourself. So you're going to want to stay with your abuser because you feel that you won't have it somewhere better somewhere else. They make you think, oh, well, I'm the only I'm the best thing you've got. You're not going to find this anywhere else. You're not going to find someone who treats you as good as I do, even though on the other flip side, I'm beating the crap of you. I'm telling you you're garbage. I'm being abusive to you. It's kind of that same situation where these women are like, they stay with him. They don't want to leave. They want to go where they're where he's taking them because he makes them feel good about themselves. Even though deep down, they know what's going on it has to be pretty awful. Yeah, there, there's there's one who who just comes out and says that that I hate this. I want no part of it. I hate the whole idea. And part of that is written off to her developing an attraction to Captain Kirk and not wanting to go and be, be the wife of of a settler somewhere. This episode, I think, even in its, you know, very cringy, you know, sweeping the human trafficking and the, you know, controlling people through drug use and the promise of a better life tried to have a pretty good moral at the end. And that was when Eve took the placebo and became beautiful and said to uh, the leader of the mining colony, is this what you want? Do you want somebody who's vain and shallow and worthless? Or would you rather have a partner in life who will live with you and cry with you and love you? That is a great great lesson, especially for young men who are trying to decide what the next 80 years of their life should look like and who they should choose to be a partner. And should it be somebody who is a partner who will, you know, love you and and share your life with you? Or is it just going to be somebody that you can have on your arm to impress your friends? And, And that was a good message. The fact that At the end of the day, at least in that last scene, it was a placebo that Eve took 
that she really did have the confidence and the belief inside herself and didn't need a drug. So I think that's where the original episode was sort of going lesson-wise, but I think using human trafficking as a vehicle to tell that story mm-hmm. is a little bit hard to watch by today's standards. It's very hard to watch by today's standards. No, I would agree with you on that. I mean, it's 2020. I watched TOS for the first time just a few years ago, three years ago. So that's what I got from this episode. Yes, it has this great message of essentially self-love and confidence in yourself. You may not be the prettiest woman or guy at home. And so someone comes along and says, hey, I can make you better. Someone will love you. Finding that love and thinking that you are going to get love for yourself because someone else loves you because of your outward beauty rather than for who you truly are is a really great message. I think that in today, we still struggle with that. I struggled with that as a teenager. I think every teenager went through this phase of like, I'm not cute. I don't get dates. I'm not pretty. That really affects everybody. Hollywood does not help with this standard of this is what beauty is and this is how people perceive you. So it is really a wonderful message to find that confidence in yourself, to have that self-love and realize I can find somebody who wants to be with me for who I am because of who I am, not because I'm taking this pill that makes me prettier or I'm having this plastic surgery done to fix this thing that I don't like about myself or someone has told me I shouldn't like about myself. That is a great message, but you're right. If you look at this episode now, it really is human trafficking. I mean, and it could be that, you know, at the time they thought that this was more of a arranged marriage type situation. Sure, more of a whimsical match- matchmaking episode. I could see that at the time, given, you know, the 60s. But given today in the world and looking back on it now, obviously, it does take a very different light and it's very dark and not a great story. But we can learn from that, you know, that it happens. And how do we address it? What does Kirk and crew do to address this situation? How do we handle that type of situation if we come across it ourselves? What do we do? How do we stop this? How do we help? Right. Great questions. You know, and just starting from the beginning of this, some of the decisions, you know, to put their own ship at risk to save Mud's ship as it entered the asteroid field. That's kind of what kicked off this chain of events that that required them to go get lithium crystals uh, from Rigel 12. I guess that was before they got the dilithium crystal upgrade that came later in Star Trek. So th- there was that. And that, that was a big risk to save somebody else's ship. What should they have done as soon as they realized that these women were being referred to as cargo was completely separate the situation. Okay, we're not going anywhere with you. You're not taking these women anywhere. We're going to get this ship fixed. We're going to go to Starbase 47, and we're going to take care of this, and we're going to settle everything settle everything that way. But do not let these women go with that man to wherever they want to take them uh, until they get things sorted out. Definitely. I agree with you on there. Just because of the situation, it's it's really quite sad. Rather than like, let's take a look at this crystal that he's got. What does this do? And how does this work? I can understand that as a, you know, scientist and being interested in things like that. On the flip side, nah, you don't call people cargo. Nope. Is there anything else you want to discuss about this episode? Like from your perspective of what you do, what risks are involved? You know, I mean, obviously there's risks to mud. He's caught by space police, I guess. You know, there's there's ramifications there. Yeah, k- kind of kind of funny to see the Enterprise uh, just kicking off the show, sort of in the role of uh, space 
state trooper. There's an unidentified ship out there sailing around and they want to pull it over. They handle him. He doesn't respond. Overheating his engines, goes into an asteroid field. They decide to extend their shields around. Harry Mudd's ship end up taking out five of their six crystals. So big risk there. Now, was that an ego thing? I'm not going to let him go away? Or is that a just uh, the law is the law and we're going to uphold it? Or is that a we're going to we're going to help these people and not let, the, you know, not watch them get themselves killed? And I really do think it was a we're not going to let these people get killed in an asteroid field. In fact, later on, when when Kirk is asked, did he think he made the right decision by saving Mud and the women while doing damage to their ship? He said, I think I did. You can't let another man and his ship be destroyed. So I think that was I think that was a, a very sort of brave, compassionate thing to do that put himself at risk that others may not have made. And the other thing that he refused outright when the lithium miners asked or really demanded the women in exchange for the lithium crystals and all charges to be dropped against Harry Mudd. He just said flat out no to that. And I think that was just exactly the right decision to make. The problem was is that when they got down to only having a few hours left before their orbit decayed because they were on battery power, that then they went down and they did try to make a deal. Now, the deal they made was the women can stay if they want to, but we want our crystals. And we get Harry Mudd also. So at the end of the day, a deal was made which preserved, I think, the integrity of the women and their option to leave. It kept Harry Mudd and it saved the ship. So I think that... All of those things were generally okay, with the exception that when somebody is being trafficked, I think it's probably a better plan to remove them from the situation entirely, let them speak to some specialists, let them get some counseling, and find out if they want to proceed down that course of action of their own free will. Or are they being coerced or are they just being misled? So those are all decisions that were made through the course of the episode um, that raised interest in me. Well, and especially given the training that you recently had to have, I can imagine as an airline pilot, that's is that something you have to periodically have is go through retraining in trafficking or is it something kind of new? It's something that's kind of new, but it will be taken on a recurrent basis. So it, it was introduced recently, and now we'll we'll cycle through it again based on uh, the effectiveness of the training and uh, whether the situation gets better, or worse, or stays the same. I wonder if uh, you think that potentially Starfleet, based off of this situation that happens with this episode, do they either have training in human trafficking or do you think this is something that might have came about from this episode? I think it's something that would have raised an awareness or should have, Mm -hmm. you know, imagining that, you know, the captain's logs are all sort of public knowledge as they seem to be over and over again, and the reports that are filed and those kind of things. I think that knowledge base would improve and enhance and and make its way into formal training. Um, you know, I think of the episode of Next Gen, The Perfect Mate, I believe it was called, with Famke Jensen, mm-hmm. and how she was treated in that episode uh, versus how she may have been training if there had been no awareness of human trafficking. And that was treated very much more like an arranged marriage, Um, but there was no awareness. And at least that was more or less spoken to in that episode. So I I do think that an awareness did develop. And sure, I think it probably came from this episode. So good for Jim Kirk for filing a report and getting that data back to Starfleet so they could start training future captains. 
Sure thing. No, I definitely agree. And that's one thing that's really interesting for me is that a lot of these episodes, if something happens, there is either no follow up or you just have to think in your head what happens afterwards. And that is something after this episode, I would hope that Starfleet would say, all right, we've got to either put this into our training with our captains and our bridge crew to make sure that we're aware of situations like this and what these ramifications can be and what training we need to go. And so you would hope that Starfleet, depending on all these different scenarios, obviously, that Kirk and crew get into, Starfleet took that as advice and like revamped training and created classes for future crews. Like we do see in TNG, they are aware of some of these issues that happen and they handle it. Granted, it's a different crew and it's a different captain and that's just kind of how they wrote him. But at the same time, I think that this definitely led to it. So this next episode you wanted to discuss, I actually kind of don't mind it. I know a lot of people are not big on this episode, but we're going to talk about Miri. I'm looking forward to it. So Miri popped up for me because I was looking for things that weren't just decisions made on a ship that affect the ship. I wanted to look for episodes where decisions were made that affected other people. So the the show starts kind of weird. They uh, they come up on an Earth-like planet. In fact, it's so Earth-like, it's Earth. Same continent, same size, same everything, which sort of seems odd because that never comes up in the episode again, really. Uh, but the crew beams down, looks around, sort of immediately get attacked by what appears to be a very, very, very old man in children's clothing, um, crying that his tricycle is broken. Crew fights him off. He dies right away. They run around looking for some other kids, find a girl named Miri who's just super scared of everybody, definitely scared of the crew. And then she finally explains that the grub who Yeoman Rand understood to be the grown-ups would burn things and yell and hit the children before they died. They just did awful things and then they died and went away. You know, the they do a little investigation. They realize there's a there's a plague that affects the adults, but not the children. But there's no adults and the planet's been abandoned for 300 years. So how does this work? Well, it turns out that the people were working on a life prolongation thing, and these kids are actually like 300 years, and as soon as they reach adulthood, they go insane, they start to age super rapidly, and, and then they die. And unfortunately, the whole crew now has that virus, and they have less than a week to live. The kids steal their communicators. Now they're stuck on the planet, trying to come up with a cure. Yeoman Rand gets kidnapped by the kids because Miri has a crush on Captain Kirk, and they want to set a trap for Captain Lovey Dovey. Captain Lovey Dovey goes to try to get Yeoman Rand back, Kids go after him, bonk, bonk on the head style. And the next thing you know, Kirk says, look at your hands. Look at you. There's blood on your hands. You're doing the beating now, not the grups. So at that point, when I was watching this episode, boy, it, re- it made me realize right away that this was sort of a break the cycle episode, that these kids got abused by the grups. The grups are now gone. And the, the kids or the onlys, as they're referred to in the episode, are are hitting puberty themselves and they're becoming the grups and they're becoming abusive and they, they they're hitting and they're hurting other people and what do you do to break the cycle well what the crew of the enterprise does is they develop a cure they uh they raise an awareness to the children that this is this will happen to them as well if they don't break the cycle and they bring in, they leave behind some teachers and counselors to help with the kids. And then they call Space Central, which I never heard of before or after. 
in any Star Trek, but they call Space Central to uh, send a team that'll uh, that'll teach the kids and you know make them you know live healthy normal lives. They don't really address it. I guess with the virus going away, so does the life prolongation. So I'm thinking they probably age normally. They did leave people behind and call other people in as a resource to help these kids. Uh, adjust. So overall, I think it was a good episode. I think things were handled as best as they could be. And uh, what are your thoughts on it? So I do think this episode definitely ended well. They did the right things. They did the things that they should have done. You can picture what happened afterwards because of the teachers and the adults that they did leave behind to help these kids and the ones that they called in rather than just like, hey, we're going to come down to this planet. We're going to do things. We're going to leave. That's it. We're done. We're never going to talk to you again. And so this episode really ended well. And I think that's just because it was a bunch of kids. It wasn't a bunch of adults. If they had, if it had been a done bunch of adults, I'm sure that they would have said, okay, here's the vaccine. Now we're going to leave. You guys are just left to fix and continue to fix yourselves rather than, hey, we're going to leave a bunch of people here to help you. And so what you speak to of is this cycle of abuse is really interesting. I think this was the only thing that I had kind of an issue with and I get because it's an episode and they had only so much time to get everything done. Stopping a cycle of abuse actually takes long than most people think. Sometimes it's a generational thing. And sometimes it can happen quickly if one person finally says, okay, I'm not going to continue. I'm not going to continue to live like this. I'm not going to continue to be this way. I'm ending it. But it takes therapy and it takes that realization and the person has to realize that themselves rather than being told. Sometimes someone can tell you, hey, this is abusive. This is a bad situation. You've got to stop it. Living in that type of environment, sometimes you don't notice that it is an awful situation that you're in. You don't realize it yourself and someone pointing it out can make you angry and lash out at them and say, no, it's not like that. You don't understand. So I think my only issue with that episode was that specifically that these kids somehow were like, okay, we get it. it it's us. You know, we're, we're becoming the awful people that the grups were to us. We're doing to you. So you think this would have been generations before there was sort of normal emotional development for people on that planet? I think it probably would have been at least a couple of generations. You know, if the kids had kids, the the balance would have started to happen, but it wouldn't necessarily be that quick just because it is really difficult. You see this in the cycle of poverty. That's another one that people really struggle to get out of. And it takes someone saying, I'm not going to live like this. I can have something better and really having to strive and work hard for it. Uh, It's the same with the cycle of abuse. It's very much, it takes a lot of work to end it and say, no, I'm not going to continue this. And it's constant work, especially if it's someone, let's say a 16 year old who grows up in an abusive environment and his parents and grew up in an abusive environment and so on and so on. And it's been going on for generations. It's going to take them a lot of work with themselves to not fall back to that because that's all they've known. And it's easier to act that way than it is to say, I'm not going to do it. And I'm going to be this wonderful human. And I'm not going to be abusive to my spouse, to my girlfriend, to my boyfriend, to my kids, whether it's verbal, whether it's physical, it doesn't matter. It's a lot of work. It's really, really difficult for someone to do that. It's easier to fall back to what you know. And it is for any of us in any type of situation. It's easy for us to fall back into our own habits and fall back to what is comfortable and easy rather than try to fix ourselves and make ourselves better. 
save the kids and get them some counseling? Definitely. Definitely. That was, I think, what I said about this episode is really great because they do make the right call. Kirk realizes these kids need more help. And rather than bringing them all aboard, which I don't think was, would have been a smart idea, because then they would have just had to drop them off on somewhere else. But, you know, they don't want them to disrupt them from their home that they've known for centuries, considering how old these kids really are. So it's it's great to pull in people and say, hey, we're going to get you the help that you need. We recognize that you need the help. So we're going to do that for you because we want you to be better. And it does. It takes someone saying to somebody else, I want you to be better. I see the potential in you. You can do this and help them and stick with them. You know, they have to stand by their side until that person says, I can do this myself. Thank you for your support and everything you've given me, but I'm ready to do this myself. You know, and some of the things I liked, you know, leadership wise was just, you know, Kirk's willingness to put his best people on a solution where he didn't try to solve all the problems himself. And, and, and rarely does he. I mean, normally he puts Spock and McCoy to work doing what Spock and McCoy do best, as well as, you know, the random specialist of the week who seems to be on the ship with nothing else to do for years and years at a time. But, but he did that, uh, use the resources available on the planet with the, with the hotel and the equipment, and uh, as well as the ship's resources didn't put anybody else at risk. Uh, the navigator, Mr. Farrell, said that there was uh, volunteers willing to beam down and help. And he said, absolutely not. We can't take a risk on anybody else getting the virus. So putting other people, putting his crew first, putting his ship first, uh, using resources to come up with the best answer were all good things. One thing I noted was, you know, second second episode in a row where I noted he kind of lost his temper a little bit with the crew. And that was just a, a device used to raise the tension and, and realize how stressed out they were getting. After seven days in the same clothes on a planet working in a lab. I guess those communicators get kind of heavy after a while, so they just all decided to put them down on the same counter and let the onlys come in and take them. Probably a mistake there. Everybody should probably have a communicator on them. And uh, but but again, you know, young captain at this point, probably not, you know, either thinking of those things. But as we see his character mature, you know, those little outbursts don't seem to happen anymore. Well, and I think in a high stress environment, you're not necessarily going to be fully aware of like, okay, I've put my communicator down. Other people put their communicators down, you know, like you've got so much going on and you're thinking of so many other things that you might not notice something little like that. And you wouldn't necessarily think of it. I mean, we would do that now with our own cell phones, right? You know, you're doing millions of things and you're putting things down and you're like, where did I go? Where? You know, it it kind of reminded me of the night where like everybody crashes in the same apartment because nobody can drive home and all the cell phones are being charged on the same coffee table the next morning. Like, I think that's what was going on. Like everybody was just charging their communicators on that lab thing at the same time when uh, uh, when the only's came in and took them. <laughs> but yeah, this episode, actually, I think, you know, even with Kirk's frustration of, you know, lashing out and that's understandable, too. It's a high stress situation that's going on you find out you're going to die in a week. Like, I don't know how I'd handle that. Like, I don't think I want to know when I die. I just rather would just happen. But, sure. you know, trying to figure out, okay, we can't let this happen. I'm worried about my crew aboard the ship, you know, like what's going to happen to them if we all end up staying down here and dying. You know, these kids are going to end up having the same situation and the same fate as we are here in a few years or something. So that's understandable that he would lash out 
everybody's stressed and frustrated and it happens when everybody gets that way. So I think this episode, as far as Kirk's leadership goes, really is well done. I think he makes the right calls. He understands that may not be the one to go to to figure this situation out, but he's going to do what he can and let everybody else do what they can. And I think that's great in recognizing that, you know, sometimes Kirk does think that he's the only one who can fix the situation And he's not, and he oversteps his boundaries and doesn't let his crew do what they do best. And so this really was a great episode as far as that goes. That, you know, hey, I'm going to let this person do this because they can. I know they can. And I think from here on out, he definitely lets Spock and Bones, but everybody else, too. He didn't have to call in people, but he did. He didn't have to ask crew members, hey, do you want to stay and help these kids? No, he probably recognized which crew members would be the best and going to them. I mean, we don't see it, but I can imagine he went to them personally and said, hey, here's the situation. These kids need the help. Yes, they're centuries older than you are, but they don't know anything. Can you help them? Will you stay? Yeah, in general, I think Kirk does a very good job or is written as doing a very good job of, of managing his resources, of listening to Spock's logical side, listening to Bones's emotional side, um, weighing the consequences of each and, and making a decision that is often practical, always practical, if not perfect. Exactly. Really good choice on this one, because I think this really does show a lot. And it'd be interesting, and you know, again, this is one of those, how do these kids handle it after the help comes in and, and what happened to them? What what progress did they make for themselves? Unfortunately, Haley, I do not have a fan film to recommend for, to see how this one follows up. Maybe there's a novelization out there that uh, maybe literary treks can point us toward. Maybe. Or maybe Lower Decks is going to go to this planet and, and meet these kids <laughs> or their descendants. Who knows? We do Could have be. that coming up. <laughs> <laughs> So we're going to talk about one more, and I think this one's just a little interesting, and you can mention more about this. I'm throwing this one at you. This was on your longer list to discuss. You had mentioned about A Taste of Armageddon, and I had to go back and read this because I'm awful with episode titles, and so I don't remember. If you give me a title, I'm not going to remember what that episode is about. But this one's really interesting just because at the end, Kirk was really, truly willing to risk war between two planets to essentially save his crew, which is wonderful for a captain. You know, he wants to save his crew. You know, they've been on this mission long enough together. I'm sure he likes most of his crew. But to risk war between two planets that could potentially just destroy themselves, he admits, I don't think they were really going to do it, or they'd realize how awful it was and what a bloody mess it would be, and they really wouldn't want to. But how do you know that? You really don't know that when you've just met people just now. You can't gauge whether someone would think war was too messy to not do it. Well, you really, you know, hit the nail on the head when you said the position that he was in, mm-hmm. which was which was to save his people. You know, as a captain, you've got to put your, you know, the, the people on your ship first. You've got to put your the safety of your ship up there as your paramount uh, decision-making point now. At some point, that can be sacrificed, maybe to save millions of lives. But as Anon Seven, the councilman of the High Council of Aminiar, whatever, said, three to five million people, I think, a year 
had been dying in this war for the last 500 years. You know, one of the great all-time Kirk speeches where he said they've made war so clean and so sanitary, they've made it so easy that they don't even realize they're fighting a war. You know, when that attack came, that 500,000 people died, they were all sort of looking at each other. Did you hear any explosions? Is there any radiation? Is there anything on your tricorder? Hey, Enterprise, has anything weird happened down here? No, but 500,000 people now including all 400 and let's see, there are about four on the surface. So 424 on the enterprise plus another four on the surface. Maybe there are more than that, you know, are all dead uh, because of this. You know, it wasn't a matter of, I don't even know if it was really a matter of risking lives because those lives were going to get lost no matter what, if this war continued, it was really a matter of risking the buildings and the infrastructure and the artwork and the culture and those kind of things. You know, the fact that, you know, this decision was made where he risked all out war between these two planets, that war was happening anyway. And, and those people were dying anyway. So I think to sort of play this game of chicken with them and make them realize how ugly things could be was definitely the right decision to make. And it was just such a wonderful metaphor for um, having wars that people cheer like football games that are happening half a world away that are just sort of an abstract concept and people don't understand and can't relate and probably couldn't couldn't understand or fathom just the horrors you know that are the reality of war mm -hmm. um, because it's happening on your tv set and reported on the nightly news but to bring that home and make people realize wow this is something that needs to be avoided at all costs you know was was a wonderful message as well definitely well and i think this episode i was trying to recall it it is an interesting idea where we're not going to fight each other physically. We're going to fight each other virtually and we're still going to have the human cost. It's quite an interesting notion. I mean, where do these planets get this idea? Like we're going to fight with each other, but we're not really going to fight with each other, but we're still going to lose people. Yeah. And we developed a weapon reportedly back when I was a kid and I could have this wrong. This is kind of where I need Ken Tripp to step in and, and say something. But uh, I believe it's called the neutron bomb that was basically a dirty bomb that would explode in the city. The radiation would kill all the people, but it would leave the buildings, the infrastructure, the cars, the trucks, the airplanes, uh, everything that could be taken. And that's it's kind of that sort of situation where the people would die, but the stuff would continue. And it kind of shows a weird priority that Hey, whoa, whoa, hey, you, you can kill the people. J just don't touch my stuff. So maybe there's like a materialistic aspect of it also. But either way, like if once this stuff gets real, I think everybody who's sane would say, OK, we we need to find another way. Definitely. And that is really an interesting, you know, you bring up materials and like they don't want to lose their stuff. And how much of us think about that kind of situation if we're facing like flood? Oh, my stuff. Right. Um, evacuating an airplane. Yeah. People take their stuff. Leave your stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Like, I'm sorry, I would leave my stuff. <laughs> but, you know, like you could maybe potentially find it later, you know, if it doesn't crash in the ocean. Leave your stuff. You might be able to find it. Or you can get it again. So what do you think about Kirk and like um, and all his decisions? I mean, Spock's really interesting in this episode. You know, he's he's with the ambassador. They decide to leave this ambassador. He decides to stay. He says, I'll, I'll stay. I'll, I'll broker peace. 
Yeah, so it, it starts off in one of those situations that happens more often than I remember, where there's somebody on the ship who can, at some point, give Kirk orders. And and in this case, it's Ambassador Robert Fox, and he wants to go to the system and establish diplomatic relations with Aminiar. That's his main priority. So they get a code hailed to them that says, hey, stay away. And Kirk's like, all right, we're staying away. I'm not putting my crew or my ship in danger. Right, call? Well, then he gets ordered by the ambassador to do it. And you can say he kind of swallows this hole and says, okay, we're going in peacefully, I hope. But peacefully or not, we're going in. And they raise shields and they bring the weapons up and they kind of take a defensive posture. So he's he's now sort of using his resources to mitigate his risk. So he's got uh, he's got weapons, he's got shields, um, he's got people that he could put in the right places. And he says, I don't want to put the ship at risk, but I have to because I'm being ordered to. So I, th- I think that was you know a very good decision as well. They go down, they uh, get greeted and sort of imprisoned right away. Uh, learn a lot of really neat things in this one we learned about you know limited uh telekinesis by the vulcans where he can make the make the guard open the door for him yes. through the wall which was which was kind of cool uh so a little bit uh sort of feeding that that vulcan backstory that mr spock has that that we all love so much uh so just general disruption confusion that is you know sort of what soldiers are taught to do when they're taken prisoner is try to evade try to escape just to um create if nothing else a distraction that makes it harder for the for the people that are holding them captive. But more importantly, they uh, eliminate their ability to make war. And by doing that, um, it forces them to deal with Vendicar and uh, broker a truce Petey. Ambassador Fox at the end, I thought it made a wonderful decision. <laughs> and uh, he was not cast in the best light the first 45 minutes of the episode. But in the last few, he said, hey, I'm an ambassador. I can be here. I can broker peace between the two planets. And I do have experience doing this. So he came up big at the end, too, which I really like. Well, and it's interesting, you know, I, and I have to wonder if they had gone in without shields up, without weapons raised, giving that defensive posturing, how would that have affected the episode? Do you think that that Anon would have been like, OK, you know, they're coming. They're not coming in hot. When they first called, they, they were, you know, they weren't coming in hot. They were, they were at a distance and they were told to stay away. Um, even though they came in hot, Imeniar did not attack them. It was Vendicar that attacked them. So, you know, if we're assuming that the Vendicarians, sure. Sure, why not? <laughs> uh, the Vendicarians realize that the Enterprise was in orbit around Eminiar, uh, with its shields up and its, you know, its shields raised and its weapons hot and decided to attack them then because of that. I don't, I don't really see that as, as being a factor. But Kirk does ultimately learn the lesson of raising shields and how that can be misconstrued in Star Trek, the motion picture when they, uh, when they're coming up on Viger. So, uh, yeah, more, more character growth by Captain Kirk. Well, and I think, you know, I think depending on the race, I mean, we learn later in Star Trek that some, some races are, you have to be defensive and you have to come in hot as they say, because that is a sign of respect and it's not posturing. It's not offensive to some cultures, right? It would be offensive to come in peaceful. Weak. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that is an interesting idea. Um, yeah, Fox, Ambassador Fox is definitely not the best character. I mean, he wants to go into broker peace, but then he's just kind of like, all right, at the end, like, yeah, I'll be here. Well, wasn't that your initial goal anyway? And something else I'd like to throw out there, too, because it was just outstanding with Scotty in this episode. 
just phenomenal. Mm -hmm. You know, when Scotty was ordered by Fox to lower the shields and sort of, I forget, he said, beam everybody down for shore leave or let the other people beam up, basically leave the Enterprise defensive. Scotty was like, I'm not doing it. These guys faked a call. They attacked us with sonic waves in space. And that, that how that somehow works, I don't really know. But Scotty said, I'm not lowering the shields. Fox threatened him with going to a penal colony over that. And Scotty said, that's fine. I'm not lowering the shields till I hear it from the captain. That was great. And then he also referred to Fox as a popinjay, which I had actually had to look up. And that's a, uh, it's a, it's a type of bird, um, or it's used as a, uh, as a derisive word towards a, towards a person who's got sort of an arrogant air about them and, and dresses in a very, uh, ostentatious manner. Uh, I thought that was funny. Pop and Jay, word of the day. <laughs> I had a struggle with Kirk's, you know, decision a little bit to do what he did, but I can see why it was important. Yeah. To, if he did nothing, like if it's like, let's assume they could have escaped somehow. Right. They do. Then he's leaving a situation where three to five million people are dying every year. Yeah. And I think that's unacceptable. So, you know, the choice was to do something. And I think the the solution was, sure, three to five million people will continue to die. But maybe at least now there's a chance that they'll see the error of their ways and and make peace. Which is what Kirk always is like, hey, come to my side. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) Right. We got this figured out. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, too funny. Well, Mike, do you have any final thoughts on this discussion of leadership, uh, consequences, ramifications, and how we can relate Star Trek still to this day? So I think as, you know, times evolve, these stories can be looked at through the lens of the current day. I don't think anybody in 1966 during season one thought of Mud's Women as a human trafficking episode. But we can look at it now and we can we can discuss that now. I never thought of I I've seen Miri like probably 30 times in my life. I mean, at least. Um, I mean, good Lord, it was on every five weeks when I was a kid. I never really thought of that as a repeat the, repeat the cycle or break the cycle kind of episode before. Mm-hmm. So I think as I evolve, as times evolve, these stories can be looked at differently. Looking at the leadership of Kirk early on, I find that, you know, as an adult, I've emulated that decision-making style knowingly or unknowingly. And to me, that is use your resources hear what other people have to say, bring in the experts. There are going to be pluses and minuses. There's probably no perfect solution. But first and foremost, keep your people safe, keep your ship safe, come up with a practical solution. While maybe not perfect, benefits the most amount of people. And later on, uh, Captain Kirk has become more and more of a, a caricature of himself. As, you know, we get into Star Trek five and six and generations and, and things like that, it starts to sort of more and more mimic the, the stand up routine that Eddie Murphy did of Captain Kirk's character. I think early on, you can really see that, uh, he was a young man put in a position where he was all on his own to make the decision, but use the resources that he had and use the people that he had to make the best ones with the good of the most amount of people in mind. Was it perfect all the time? No, absolutely not. Does the show hold up through every aspect? Of course not. You know, was, the, the times were different and some of the things are excusable. Some are just flat out not, but I do still to this day, uh, look at those three men and as people that tried to do the most good for the most amount of people, take care of uh, their responsibilities to the best that they could. 
I would definitely agree with you on that. And I find it very interesting looking at these episodes and still being able to compare them to things today. I think it's wonderful that this many years on 50 plus years now, we can still say, hey, this is relevant. We can apply this to something that's going on in 2020 and look at it through that lens and say, all right, what else was going on? Yes, Kirk makes great decisions. He makes not great decisions. He's in his 30s. I can't imagine being a captain of a ship and in charge of 400 plus people every day out in space where you don't know what you're going to encounter and make the best decisions. We just watched The Core last night. Hilary Swank's character is told by Bruce Greenwood's character that, hey, you're not ready because you're not ready to accept the bad decisions that you have to make. And you are going to have to make those. It's easy to make the good decisions and make those right calls. But you also have to make the wrong ones and be okay with that. And I think that sometimes Kirk is really great at being able to accept those wrong calls and realize hey, I've made the wrong call for this set of people, but it's the right call for the rest of them. And I think that really shows true leadership when someone can accept both and be comfortable with that and recognize that sometimes their decisions might be the wrong one to some people, but they are overall the right call. And the important thing is to be able to learn from it and move on and use that the next time. Well, Mike, thank you for coming aboard today. Uh, so where can people find you if they'd like to continue this discussion with you about Kirk's leadership or just talk about Star Trek, the original series or Star Trek in general? Well, Haley, I'm a regular on the Babel Conference. Mike Richards is my uh, name on Facebook. And you can also find me on Twitter under mrichards1701. Well, fantastic. Thank you again. Thank you for listening, everyone. And join us again next time as we explore the Star Trek universe.